Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. You've likely heard of people who disappear without a trace. Sometimes they're the victims of foul play. Perhaps they left their homes on a perfectly normal morning after breakfast with their families and simply never returned. Perhaps these individuals were snatched off the street or met an untimely end and their remains have not yet been discovered. Or perhaps they left their homes with the intention of disappearing and, in most cases, never to be seen or heard from again. Welcome back, dear listeners, for another season of the Identity Podcast. I've got a bunch of new ideas for episodes, and I can't wait to present more weird, wonderful, and macabre stories designed to titillate and terrify. 11 new episodes plus a very special interview that you're sure to love if you're a professional weirdo like me. And you must be, because you're listening right now, right? This week, I'd like to introduce you to the Johatsu, or Evaporated People of Japan. Those who voluntarily choose to disappear out of the lives that they know, to begin new ones somewhere else. It'll be an interesting ride. A little news before we get started this week. Shout out to Clive from London, England, who listens to the Odd Pod on his morning commute through the tube, and to Jeff and Gina from Nebraska, who bond over the weird and wonderful, and have found a home here within the ranks of their fellow oddballs. I'm so pleased that you're all enjoying this podcast, and I greatly appreciate your continued support. As you may have seen on social media, The pod closet, yes, I podcast from a closet now, has gotten a bit of an upgrade. The wifey added a shelf for me so that I can have more room to work, and I've put up soundproofing material in an effort to further improve audio quality. A heavy moving blanket has been added as an extra layer of soundproofing for the door, and all in all, recording in here is akin, I'm sure, to recording in a crypt. I'm enjoying it immensely, as you can well imagine. I've also been fiddling with mic settings, and I'm considering adding a mixer to my setup in the future. I'll likely be using my employee discount in the not-too-distant future to procure a mixer or interface and upgrade further, but all in due time. So, without further delay, on with the show.
the population of Japan, according to a 2019 evaluation, is somewhere around 124.8 million. Within this sea of people, it's no surprise that some might slip through the cracks, or that disappearing would be fairly easy. In Japan, there's a term for this, johatsu, or evaporated people. Individuals who choose to disappear, or orchestrate their disappearances and vanish. This phenomenon is not new to those who live in Japan. As a matter of fact, disappearing was the easiest way to break an unhappy marriage or to break the bonds of family life. Trying to avoid creditors? Disappear. Want to get out of an abusive relationship? Disappear. There are literally hundreds of companies in Japan that cater to those who wish to leave their current lives and begin anew, and they charge anywhere from 2,000 to 12,000 American for their services. From the New York Post, quote, a shadow economy has emerged to service those who never want to be found, who want to make their disappearances look like abductions, their homes look like they've been robbed, no paper trail or financial transactions to track them down. Nighttime Movers was one such company started by a man named Sho Hattori. He'd run a legitimate moving service until one night in a karaoke bar, a woman asked if Hattori could help arrange for her to disappear along with her furniture. She said she couldn't stand her husband's debts, which were ruining her life. Hattori charged $3,400 per midnight move. His clientele was vast, from housewives who had shopped their families into debt to women whose husbands had left them to university students who were sick of doing chores in their dorms. He refused to give specifics to the authors, but he eventually quit. As a child, Hattori himself had disappeared with his parents from Kyoto, after they'd found themselves in debt. He believes that his former line of work was a kindness. People often associate this with cowardice, he says. But while doing this work, I came to understand it as a beneficial move. According to a 2014 report by the World Health Organization, Japan's suicide rate is 60% higher than the global average. There are between 60 and 90 suicides per day. It's a centuries-old concept dating back to the samurai who committed seppuku, suicide by ritual disembowelment, and one as recent as the Japanese kamikaze pilots of World War II. Japanese culture also emphasizes uniformity, the importance of the group over the individual. You must hit the nail that stands out is the Japanese maxim. And for those who can't, or won't, fit into society, adhere to its strict cultural norms and near-religious devotion to work. To vanish is to find freedom of a sort." End quote. According to the vanished, the evaporated people of Japan in stories and photographs by Lena Marget and Stéphane Ramel, French authors who spent five years traveling around Japan in 2008. The trend is troubling and shows no sign of stopping.
They met loved ones of individuals who had disappeared and created a book that catalogs, through words and photographs, the trend of juhatsu. Government data about this practice doesn't exist, but Maget and Ramel believe some 100,000 people disappear annually. Many family members believe that their loved ones might return someday, and are often so ashamed by the disappearance that they don't report it to police. I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes for anyone who'd like to grab a copy. In a place like Japan, where culturally it's appropriate to blend with the masses and avoid standing out too much, it's no surprise that so many people might use a night-moving company and free themselves from the bonds of assimilation, perceived or otherwise. So, walking out of your life is a little weird and random, but that's not really what I'm here to talk about. I'm taking a dive into Japanese lore and finding possible connections between the disappearances of so many people and folkloric creatures that inhabit another world to which these people could possibly be spirited away. A film called Spirited Away is one of Japan's highest grossing films. For those of you who haven't seen it, I offer a brief synopsis from IMDb. In this animated feature by noted Japanese director Hayao Miyazaki, 10-year-old Chihiro and her parents stumble upon a seemingly abandoned amusement park. After her mother and father are turned into giant pigs, Chihiro meets the mysterious Haku, who explains that the park is a resort for supernatural beings who need a break from their time spent in the earthly realm, and that she must work there to free herself and her parents. So, let's begin by talking about the plausible. Each year, there are those who travel to the forest at the base of Mount Fuji, known as Iokigahara, or the Sea of Trees, It's a piece of land known for its popularity as a suicide spot. You might recall the piece I did on a previous episode, but I'll rehash some of the basics. Aokigahara is a densely forested area at the base of Mount Fuji, where those who had given up on life, or possibly those searching for a reason to live, are often lost. Many bodies have been uncovered within the forest, and signage is posted telling those who enter to reconsider if they're considering suicide. There are people charged with entering the forest in order to find those who might have gotten lost or taken their own lives, and personal items can often be found abandoned either at the site where human remains are found or in random locations throughout Aokigahara. Cell signals are poor, and even though some have used twine or ribbon to mark their route through the sea of trees, they might get turned around and not be able to find their way out. Even a compass won't help. There are many Japanese folklore tales that involve some mythical creature taking humans from the earth and transporting them onto an otherworldly plane. 
For example, the kappa is a frog-like creature roughly the size of a child with a turtle shell on its back, and it's been blamed for drownings and disappearances. Apparently, the kappa enjoys sumo wrestling, and it'll challenge its victim to a match in order to remove a mythical organ called the shirikodama from their victim's anus. I guess we all have this organ, and it contains our soul. Not sure why it's in our anus, but that's the story. It was customary for people to consume cucumbers, supposedly the kappa's favorite food, for protection before water travelers swimming. It's likely that when a family member disappeared, something like the kappa might have been blamed for the loss. Well, clearly somebody forgot to eat their cucumber or lost a sumo wrestling match. As is the case with many cultures, if a reasonable explanation could not be found for an event, the supernatural would be named as the cause. Where I come from, people used to believe that sleep paralysis was caused by a creature that sat on your chest. There were people who slept with anti-hag devices, essentially just a board with a nail in it, on their chest so that they could be protected while they slept. If a disappearance defied explanation, it was likely easier to blame some fantastical creature than to examine what the actual cause might be. As a child, you may have been told fantastical tales of witches, ogres, princesses in peril, and monstrous beasts by your caretakers. In Japanese culture, children are often told stories very similar to those you might have heard during your childhood. In Japan, there are many kami kakushi stories, otherwise known as stories about being spirited away. When I was a child, I was told to watch out for fairies in the woods, small creatures who would lure you into the depths of the forest to perish or leave you with a permanent mark so that anyone who saw it would know that you had strayed from the path of safety and trespassed onto their lands. There are stories like these in Japanese culture as well, and they essentially serve the purpose of warning children away from harmful situations. However, some of them can be quite horrifying. For example, there's a story about a little boy who gets lost in the mountains for several days and returns with a belly full of live snails. Truly disturbing. Other tales, that of Visu the woodsman and the old priest, for example, serve to promote balance and warn of what one might lose if balance is shifted. Many years ago, there lived on the then barren plain of Saruga a woodsman by the name of Visu. He was a giant in stature and lived in a hut with his wife and children. One day, Visu received a visit from an old priest who said to him, Honorable woodsman, I am afraid you never pray. Visu replied, if you had a wife and large family to keep, you would never have time to pray. The remark made the priest angry, and the old man gave the woodcutter a vivid description of the horror of being reborn as a toad or a mouse or an insect for millions of years. 
Such lurid details were not to Visu's liking, and he accordingly promised the priest that in future he would pray. Work and pray, said the priest as he took his departure. Unfortunately, Visu did nothing but pray. He prayed all day long, and he refused to do any work so that his rice crops withered and his wife and family starved. Visu's wife, who had hitherto never said a harsh or bitter word to her husband, now became extremely angry, and pointing to the poor thin bodies of her children, she exclaimed, Rise, Visu, take up your axe and do something more helpful to us all than mere mumbling of prayers. Visu was so utterly amazed at what his wife had said that it was some time before he could think of a fitting reply. When he did, his words came hot and strong to the ears of his poor, much-wronged wife. Woman, said he, the gods come first. You are an impertinent creature to speak to me so, and I will have nothing more to do with you. Visu snatched up his axe, and without looking round to say farewell, he left the hut, strode out of the wood, and climbed up Fujiyama where a mist hid him from sight. When Visu had seated himself upon the mountain, he heard a soft rustling sound, and immediately afterwards saw a fox dart into a thicket. Now Visu deemed it extremely lucky to see a fox, and forgetting his prayers, he sprang up and ran hither and thither, in hope of again finding this sharp-nosed little creature. He was about to give up the chase, when, coming to an open space in the wood, he saw two ladies sitting down by a brook, playing go. The woodsman was so completely fascinated that he could do nothing but sit down and watch them. There was no sound except the soft click of pieces on the board and the song of the running brook. The ladies took no notice of Visu for they seemed to be playing a strange game that had no end, a game that entirely absorbed their attention. Visu could not keep his eyes off these fair women. He watched their long black hair and the little quick hands that shot out now and again from their big silk sleeves in order to move the pieces. After he'd been sitting there for 300 years, though to him, it was but a summer's afternoon, he saw that one of the players had made a false move. Wrong, most lovely lady, he exclaimed excitedly. In a moment, these women turned into foxes and ran away. When Visu attempted to pursue them, he found to his horror that his limbs were terribly stiff, that his hair was very long, and that his beard touched the ground. He discovered, moreover, that the handle of his axe, though made of the hardest wood, had crumbled away into a little heap of dust. After many painful efforts, Visu was able to stand on his feet, and proceeded very slowly towards his little home. When he reached the spot, he was surprised to see no hut, and perceiving a very old woman, he said, Good lady, I am amazed to find my little home has disappeared. I went away this afternoon, and now in the evening it has vanished. 
The old woman, who believed that a madman was addressing her, inquired his name. When she was told, she exclaimed, You must indeed be mad. Visu lived three hundred years ago. He went away one day and never came back again. Three hundred years, murmured Visu. It cannot be possible. Where are my dear wife and children? Buried, hissed the old woman. And if what you say is true, your children's children too. The gods have prolonged your miserable life in punishment for having neglected your wife and little children. Big tears ran down Vizu's withered cheeks, and he said in a husky voice, I have lost my manhood. I have prayed when my dear ones starved and needed the labor of my once strong hands. Old woman, remember my last words. If you pray, work too. We do not know how long the poor but repentant Vizu lived after he returned from his strange adventures. His white spirit is still said to haunt Fujiyama when the moon shines brightly. This story appears on page 136 of a 1912 printing of Myths and Legends of Japan by F. Hadlin Davis, and it is comparable to the tale of Rip Van Winkle, but you could also read into the text and find the theme of being spirited away, warped in time. I wonder if these kinds of tales are relatable to those who are missing loved ones who have disappeared. There are many Japanese families who are still wondering where their loved ones are and when or if they might return. There are also many folk tales in Japan that speak of disguising oneself as something else and hiding in plain sight or wishing to be another person or object more powerful or of higher regard than the form the person might currently take. It seems to be that being powerless or lacking the ability to control your own fate or path is a common theme and something that many of the subjects within these legends struggle with. For example, there's the tale of the stonecutter, a man who toils in the sun all day, day in and day out, to cut stones for walls, roadways, and tombstones. One day, he carries a tombstone to the home of a rich man, and he sees all the beautiful things that the man owns. He wishes out loud that he might be as rich as this man, and because there's a spirit living within the mountain that he's working upon, his wish is granted. Throughout the story, the stonecutter continues to wish to be that which he thinks is more powerful or of a higher regard than that of which he last wished. He wishes to be a prince, and the wish is granted, but he finds that even the prince can be burned by the scorching sun overhead. So he wishes to be the sun. This new power is exciting, but eventually becomes tiresome. He then sees the cloud thunder and pelting the ground with rain, causing floods and creating life. He wishes to be a cloud. His wish is granted. Eventually, this too becomes tiresome. In the end, the stonecutter wishes to be the mountain because he deems it to be strong and immovable under the strain of both the sun and the clouds. 
quote, towns and villages were destroyed by the power of the rain. Only the great rock on the mountainside remained unmoved. The cloud was amazed at the sight and cried in wonder, is the rock then mightier than I? Oh, if only I were the rock. And the mountain spirit answered, your wish is heard, the rock you shall be. And the rock he was and gloried in his power. Proudly he stood, and neither the heat of the sun nor the force of the rain could move him. This is better than all, he said to himself. But one day he heard a strange noise at his feet. And when he looked down to see what it could be, he saw a stonecutter driving tools into his surface. Even while he looked, a trembling feeling ran all through him, and a great block broke off and fell upon the ground. Then he cried in his wrath, Is a mere child of earth muddier than the rock? Oh, if only I were a man. And the mountain spirit answered, Your wish is heard. A man once more you shall be. And a man he was. And in the sweat of his brow he toiled again at his trade of stone cutting. His bed was hard and his food scanty. But he had learned to be satisfied with it, and did not long to be something or somebody else. And as he never asked for things he did not have, or desired to be greater and mightier than other people, he was happy at last, and never again heard the voice of the mountain spirit. Who are we if we are powerful? We're the mountain. We're the sun and the clouds. But who are we if we're powerless? Who are we without strength? It seems that these are all questions brought to mind while reading these legends. Not everyone can be powerful and hold all the cards. Not everyone can have the same balance in their lives. Perhaps after hearing stories like this in their childhoods and living within the collective hum, some individuals decided to break away. Indeed, some of the Johatsu may have taken their own lives. Some may have run from creditors or abusive spouses, but others may have just wanted to escape and be free to become their own person. Now, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention Japan's love of ghost stories in this episode. There's certainly a ghostly quality to some of the stories that I've read regarding those who have disappeared without a trace. It's almost as if they're swallowed up by some sort of vortex and cease to exist. Even though that there's proof that many of these people wind up moving to new places and beginning again. So I guess from here, I should talk a little about yokai, otherwise known as tales of ghosts, demons, monsters, or the unexplained. Yokai is basically a catch-all term for creepy shit, and I'm all about that. In December of 2019, the Albuquerque Journal released a story about yukai and the showing of some Japanese artifacts at the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Curator Felicia Katz-Harris was interviewed about the exhibit. Quote, Japan is famous for its variety of yokai. Early imagery appeared in religion. They materialized as oni, demons or goblins complete with horns and fangs. 
The roots of many of the stories and images extend back to the Muromachi period, scroll paintings, from about 1336 to 1573. A scroll from the Edo period, 1603 to 1867, describing the night parade of 100 demons also helped set the stage. Yokai may range from the malevolent to the mischievous. There are these weird, inexplicable shared experiences, Katz Harris said. Then there becomes this yokai that becomes the bean washer. By the Edo period, 1603 to 1867, artists began depicting these phantoms in woodblock prints, then books. Kabuki theater and puppets expressed the yokai on stage. This was a time of relative peace, Katz Harris says. There were new markets for leisure activities like books. Illustrated graphic novels and comic books appeared in Japan long before their occurrence in the West. By the time of the Meiji period, 1868 to 1912, Japan's 250-year-old feudal isolationist policies crumbled with the overflow of the government. Social issues began to surface in yokai arts. The tale of Genji, the story about a woman who is rejected by a married womanizer, appears in Taiso Yoshitoshi's 1886 woodblock print of a ghostly woman sitting on a tangled vine. Equal parts sexist and yukai, a mask of the ghost Hanya by artist Terai Ichiu depicts a woman who transforms into a demon through jealousy and rage. End quote. There have been instances where people who have disappeared have been seen on the street or in a marketplace. Friends and family members have witnessed these appearances and are sure that it's their loved ones that they're seeing. When they try to catch the person or approach them, it's as if they disappear completely. Have these people passed on and become part of the continual energy swirling around us? Or did they simply become aware that they'd been spotted and slip into some otherwise unseen area, seemingly swallowed up by some supernatural vortex? Perhaps we'll never know. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll be back again next week with more tales of the creepy, weird, and the paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes, and sincerest thanks to those who have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.